Pete Yost here for the Unbuild It podcast with a word about our sponsor, Huber Engineered Woods. There are really three reasons why I think Huber Engineered Woods stands out, and it's a big part of why they're a sponsor of our Unbuild It podcast. First, they develop systems of products. The products are compatible and integrated. Makes our jobs a lot more easy in the field and when specifying. Second is superior tech support. There are really good website resources that they have developed for the application of their products, but they also have an outstanding uh, 800 number tech team that really knows their stuff. And the last is a really active technical research and development team with whom I've done a lot of work over the years, and I have a lot of faith in the information I get from them when I have questions about product performance. So that's it. That's our high-performance sponsor. Now on to the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Unbuild It podcast. I'm Pete Yost, your host for this week, and I got my good buddy Steve Basic here. Hello. And we're really lucky to have a special guest in part because this is part of our very short but important series from Building Science Summer Corporation's Summer Symposium, also known as Summer Camp. And that is Coda Ueno. How you doing, everybody? Do you know Coda, Steve, by the way? Uh, yes. Worked <laughs> with Coda for a number of years. Yeah, so both Steve and I were lucky to work with Coda at uh, Building Science Corporation. And uh, he's just an amazing uh, building scientist. And what we thought we would do is uh, we have a, a bunch of questions from our listeners that are pretty much related exclusively to the building enclosure. And who better to work with us on that than Coda Ueno? How's that sound? Sounds great. Okay. So I'm going to go through the questions and uh, either paraphrase or read the question, and then we'll let you launch in and we'll see how we go. And we have a whole bunch of questions. Sometimes we do one or two, and sometimes we get through a bunch, but we'll just see how it goes. Okay. So uh, I'm not even sure how to pronounce its name, but I'm going to uh, say that it's Gagan Lamba. Uh, and uh, his question for the Unbuild a Podcast we moved into our current home last year. It's a custom-built home from 1992 in Wisconsin. The builder used rigid foam instead of plywood for the air barrier. We are getting bids to replace current wood siding with hardy plank as we have woodpecker damage on the wood siding. My question is if you would recommend adding plywood on top of the rigid foam as we replace the siding. Current plan is to just add Tyvek on the foam and then add hardy plaque on top of that. So... What do we think about the idea that the original rigid foam uh, was the air barrier, um, and now we're going to uh, add uh, the uh, rigid insulation? And what what should we do with each of those layers? For sure. So one thing to first think about is let's break down the functions that we're thinking of here. They tell me that the foam is an air barrier, and I'm assuming that the original intent of this wall is that it's a water control layer. I'm assuming this is a classic lower cost Habitat for Humanity wall, stud frame, no uh, no structural sheathing, rigid foam, 
probably tape joints, at least I certainly hope so, and that surface would function as both air control and water control. This is a perfectly reasonable and workable wall. Of course, once you've perforated with the last generation of siding, you have to add a new water control layer and possibly air control layer, just given that you've punched a bunch of holes in it and it no longer functions as that. So the question boiling down to do you need plywood on that? That I'm assuming that the house has not fallen down yet, given that he's <laughs> writing about it. So there's nothing that's actually blown it over. There's basically the shear, the structural loads have been controlled by other means. So there's no need to add it structurally. Um, there's, uh, you know, maybe, you know, possibly it's worth arguing that it'll make your house a little bit stiffer. Uh, but, you know, it's not required by any means. Then let's get back to the air control, water control side of things. Putting a layer of Tyvek on the outside that handles the water control beautifully, so you're all set there. Air control, eh, I've never frankly seen a mechanically fastened house wrap as a great air barrier. Um, it's better than nothing. Um, you know, there are all sorts of other options that are way more cost and way more annoying to do. Uh, but the last piece of it is, do you actually need it? I'm guessing that the contractor often pushes having a rigid sheathing just to have something easier to attach to. But if you look at the install manuals for Hardy, it says, quote, direct attachment, which is the name of nailing the stuff through foam. That's perfectly by the books up to one inch is my recollection. Yeah. That's really interesting because when I first looked at this question, I was thinking, well, wait a minute. You not only have the issue of how well each of these materials will satisfy as a control layer, but how am I going to attach this uh, new cladding, which is a pretty dense, heavy cladding weight per square foot? You know, do we, do we really need, or let me put it this way. If we added the plywood as sort of a nail base for the, for the uh, cladding, I'm not sure the codes are going to accept simply attaching that cladding to the plywood as adequate to support that cladding. Yeah, this is the edge of what I recall. I'm trying to remember whether Hardy's manuals say specifically stud nailing only or if there's any flexibility. But one thing I've always argued about folks who say stud nailing only that means you can't apply your product to SIPS construction then, correct? It's a structural insulated panel. Right. Interesting. Steve, you have any insights on this? For I have many insights on mm -hmm. this. Oh, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> so, totally agree with Coda. Um, the, uh, the, I guess, the options that I would provide if that was a client of mine, I would say, listen, you can do a number of things with the foam. First of all, you could tape the joints with a very aggressive tape or retape them if mm -hmm. they are taped with like a Sega Ventrum or something that's highly aggressive. Um Second, you could put a house wrap over it, but I don't think I would put Tyvek. I would do like a Sega MyVest or their SA product, which is their self-adhering. Mm -hmm. Clean up the, obviously you'd want to wipe down the foam, make sure it's not dirty or got junk all over it. Or you could go to like a Benjamin Obdike SA, which is a self-adhesive. Um, but if it were if it were my house and I was doing it, I would probably put the Sega My Vest over it, and then I would do one by four um, treated battens on the studs and attach my Hardy plank to that. You know what's interesting here too is that if this if the rigid foam was used as an air barrier, and that was 1992, it's hard to get really aggressive uh, uh, tape on the surface of something like rigid foam. Um, 
course, depending upon what type of foam, EPS, XPS, or foil face. Um, but seems like a really good idea to do a blower door test on this house, you know, to find out, well, how good of an air barrier do you have before you go deciding, you know, the details of your wall assembly? For sure. Although, you know, doing a blower door test and trying to look for leaks, it's going to be a bit difficult given, you know, trying to identify every single hole through the foam, that type yeah. of thing. I think it's doing a blower door test to just understand at what level of integrity your um, esteemed uh, air barrier is working at. Cool. Um all right, that's a pretty good wrap, I hope, Gagan, for your a wall assembly. And, uh, you know, there's no rule about coming back and asking a sec second question about uh, the advice that we give. All right, number two. Uh, this is a, a question from Bill Halsiak. Uh Lives in a two-level house, the lower level is being a walkout. The plan currently is to use metal siding on the house, mounted vertically, and run that over zip R12 sheeting panels and the ICF walls. The siding profile has a three-inch air gap in it, in the profile. Does this approach require a rain screen, furred out with one-inch plywood strips? My thought is that any water that gets behind the siding should drain down the gap, and there is enough ventilation to drain. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of questions actually wrapped up in this one, but let's go through it using our continuous control layers. Oh, um I, I just want to give the quick answer. There's the famous line that, you know, you ask an engineer the time and he tells you how to build a watch. So if you wanted the quick answer, it's just that, yep, it is a rain screen intrinsically on its own. It has an air gap behind it. It's part of the construction. No need to add strapping full stop. You know, what's interesting here, too, is that um, we, we really don't know uh, as much about the sort of the, the what each of the control layers is in this assembly. Although we do know they're putting zip R12 on, so presumably they're gonna tape those seams and make that the weather resistant barrier as well as the air control layer. Um, I, I'm a little, I know he put in here, see attached PDF, and I don't have the attached PDF <laughs> to know just how that air gap is, but we do know that at three eighths of an inch, we're going to bo both get really good drainage as well as some air movement. So if that is the case, I think we're in good shape. Absolutely. You guys have probably said this on the podcast a bunch of times, but the levels of the air gap are, you know, one sixteenth of an inch to provide drainage, making sure we're not damming up water. The usual analogy I give of how big does the gap need to be? You need to be looser than however you stuff barrel staves together so that water doesn't <laughs> leak out. So or water does leak out is what we want. Oh, that's interesting. And, and you know, three eighths of an inch, you know, that's a reason entirely reasonable conservative size for a drained and ventilated cavity providing that airflow. Could you go smaller? Possibly. Could you go bigger? Yeah, probably. Although going much bigger than three-quarter inch, eh, who cares? And you're increasing fire risks at that point. Uh, now, I always thought, Coda, that that three-eighths of an inch, 10 millimeter, I always say, like, that's that's a good for both drainage and, and uh, convective air movement. That's a good number. But it's right out of the Canadian building code for maritime construction that we need a 10 millimeter gap between the WRB and any cladding. 
Is that, is that where you thought it came from? or No, I think that the number probably predated. Well, my understanding is that the Vancouver condo crisis promoted a whole yep. lot of this. Basically, um, 1990s construction, very subpar, a lot of bad flashing details, and massive numbers of failed construction projects, lawsuits. And part of that was pushing into the building code, getting a three-eighths inch ventilated airspace behind the cladding. Uh, but my understanding is that dimension predated that code requirement. Steve, I remember you telling me that you have seen, I think there were even some photos with it, that if you've got that air gap open at the bottom, but it's not open at the top, that you've actually seen you know, moist air that gets stacked up in there, creating paint peeling off the first one or two clabbers that run in that system. You know, so it does go. Did you agree that that makes a big difference having open top and bottom rather than just open bottom? Yeah, it's absolutely true that uh, the John, the terms that John Straub uses is a ventilated cavity means yeah. openings low and high. A vented cavity means openings just low. So having through flow dries things out better and faster than openings only low. And there's lots of studies demonstrating that. Now, you do some crazy stuff by putting air gaps all over the place with open joint claddings. Yeah, we just, we have a pro current project that's open joint, like three sixteenths inch open joint between like one by four-ish boards. It's multi-width boards, everything from one by three through one by eight, but that vertical joint is continuous open joint through the whole wall. Did you say three sixteenths is the gap? Yeah, it's, it's wow. about, it's a three sixteenths strong. The, uh -huh. the husband wanted three sixteenths because he liked the tighter. The wife wanted the quarter inch. So he said, just cut three sixteenths a little stronger. <laughs> and they're both happy. Pretty good compromise. <laughs> okay. Um, question number three related to building enclosure details. Uh, this is from Michael Ballou. And he says, hello, Peter. So apparently he doesn't really know Steve or Jake. Uh, I seek your guidance. Roofs are designed to not leak. I noticed no drive to begin rain screen technology for roofing practices. If sidewalls were seen as vertical roof surfaces, hint of Joe Steeprick there, mm -hmm. and treated as such, then we would negate the need to accommodate the water infiltration within and upon this plane. Just for example, consider the standard flashing package that comes with a Velux skylight, which may be some of the best in the industry. Kind of interesting. So do we apply these techniques to windows and doors? Do we need, should we be providing uh, basically ventilated rain screens for roofs? Yeah, so we actually, there are some designs of roofs that are essentially a drained and ventilated cavity. Um, we use this all the time when we're dealing with rich dude's house out in Aspen where the snow probably piles up taller than I am, taller than maybe even Steve on some of the years. Uh, and, That's above the first story, by the way. <laughs> and um, basically having your, say, a spray foam or rigid foam roof assembly then strapping maybe two buys running up the slope, creating a open cavity, another layer of sheathing, another layer of water control, and you're cladding on top of that. The reason it's used specifically for ice dams is that by flowing cold air through that, it keeps the snow from melting, avoiding that ice dam problem. Um, but in addition to that, I can also try to sell it as an incredible durability upgrade because I can tell the client, look, you got 
two roofs on your house, your first roof starts leaking. Hopefully it gets caught in that lower layer, starts draining out. And somebody says, hey, why is our icicles pouring out of these weird openings in my roof? And somebody hopefully at that point fixes it. One bit of caution, though, is the classic rain screen drained and ventilated cavity relies on things like lapped joints, flat through wall flashings. The whole concept, if you think about it, water runs down through that rain screen cavity, hits a through wall flashing, drains out, and it's out of the cavity, out of the wall. Turn this into a roof. What happens? You're flowing just on the outside of the shingles, and the next hole it hits, it'll come right darn in. So you're not getting a huge, you know, a lot of the rain screen flashing concepts are not necessarily going to apply in the same way. There's actually a pretty spectacular failure of um, a metal skinned building with a gap behind where water, you know, basically they try to design it like a wall instead of a roof. And guess what? It acts like a roof because it's a wall that sloped back towards the sky. Oh, wow. You know, um, I think what's a little bit confusing about the difference between roofs and walls is that we do provide a, a vent chute space underneath, which is for, uh, uh, you know, convective drying, but that's not a free draining space for water. So, you know, we, we don't go inside walls and create that ventilated space. We put the space for uh, convective air movement and drainage on the outside. So it's, it's a little tricky with roofs, I think, because uh, you're dealing with both the top side uh, drainage of water as opposed to running that convective layer underneath the roof sheathing. You can just, I get this question a lot. What's the difference between having that vent chute space underneath the roof sheathing or on top? Well, the question is, they both are going to move air through them and get you convective drying, but one happens to provide a great drainage space for water and the other doesn't. Yeah. And there are cases I've seen of people trying to make a vent chute into something that drains somewhat. For instance, just rigid foam cut to the size of the rafter cavity, lapping the joints, but it's ship in a bottle territory there. Mm, interesting. Well, if on that one, I have some other comments about other stuff, but that one in particular, if you put rigid foam up there, like I've seen guys cut polyiso and put it up there. So now you have an impermeable layer. So you 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 think you're having a vented roof that is connected to a vented airspace, but the vented airspace you've cut off all moisture migration. So your vent, vented roof is really only venting the underside of the plywood, mm-hmm. not the vented roof itself. Um, but as far as um, rain screen systems, we've done quite a few of them. Um, I mean, we just did a metal roof where there's a product called Entangled Mesh mm-hmm. where we've put that on before we put the metal roof on so that it has a drainage space there if you get any condensation or that building up on the underside of the metal roof. But Cedar Breather. Cedar Breather's yeah. been around yeah. for, for sure. 25 years or so. Mm-hmm. And we put that under wood shingles and, and different systems there. So there are systems there, but I think... You know, the, the the biggest difference is, is most roofs up until probably recently, and I say recently, like 10, 20 years, were always vented. Mm-hmm. And so the vented roof, there was no cause or concern to put a vented space topside of the plywood because you're getting rid of all the moisture below the sheathing. Yeah. And so as we do hot roofs and more of them, then it's going to become more of a critical um, thought 
in the assembly. But up until now, I don't think that it has for that reason. And it's interesting. The, the code requires for uh, uh, shakes and shingles, wood, wood shingles, that you have that space, right? And it's because if you think about it, is that a drainage space or is that a drying space? Well, clearly, when we're talking about wood shakes and shingles, the code thinks that it's for drying. But frankly, any water that gets past that, if there's roofing paper below there, it's actually a drying space and a drainage space. Absolutely. And also, you can use the same kind of drainage mat under metal roofs. A lot of roofers push back on that. But one specific case is zinc roofing actually requires that because you can get something called hot water corrosion, where basically the zinc pinholes to nothing. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Because the water heats up so much underneath the, the zinc roof? Basically, you got flat smashed against flat, holding onto the water, heats up in the sun. Exactly. That's yeah, I saw that on a million-dollar roof. Yikes. <laughs> million-dollar zinc roof that had to get torn off like after a, a few years. A, a million-dollar hot plate sort of on top of the roof. <laughs> million dollars worth of dumpster oh. <laughs> all the way roof. Okay, rolling right along here. We got some really good ones, but this one is from Sean. And I, I just – I have it's, it's kind of long, but I have to read this because – what he says at the very beginning is, in earlier episodes, Joe Stebrick's name came up a lot, and Steve always mentioned him in the past tense. It wasn't until watching a video on the Build Show where Matt was on a Zoom call with Joe that I realized the guy wasn't actually dead. <laughs> Might want to clarify that with your listeners in case they made the same assumption. Hey, can I clarify? Yes. So, Sean, the reason I referenced, I wasn't referencing Joe's um, living status, I was referencing Peter and my association with Building Science Corporation. Exactly. Um, that's just too precious to skip, though. As, and then he says, anyways, I've been looking at a different way to do unvented roof assemblies with exterior insulation, preferably min mineral wool, and I'm wondering what the best detail is. The plan is to have uh, three and a half pitch finished with standing seam metal. I've seen builders install insulation on top of the roof sheathing and the WRB, then attach a second layer of sheathing over the insulation, such as zip panels, then um, installing furning strips on top of the standing seam. But I've also been uh, seen builders install the furring strips directly over the mineral wool, eliminating the second layer of roof sheathing. My question is, is doing the latter method a bad idea? It's essentially just taking a rain screen detail that works very well on an exterior wall and placing it on the roof. Thoughts? Um, yeah, so th th this is one big step back kind of comment is anytime you're changing to an unvented roof with rigid foam on the exterior, rigid insulation on the exterior, rather than spray foam from the underside, you've just pretty much bought a more complicated roof. Mm -hmm. You know, basically you have to have the roof structure first. So rafters, sheathing required for structural then your layers of insulation and then oh we got to attach all sorts of cladding and stuff to the outside so you're buying definitely another layer as a nail base something to hold up your uh, cladding at least in most cases 
Um, I've definitely seen that detail where you're, you know, in skipping a middle layer, uh, an outer layer of sheathing and just putting various types of strapping, ladder strapping to support a metal roof that's within plausible. At least I've seen it done with rigid foam and basically taping that layer of foam to keep water out of the insulation sandwich. I'm a little bit hesitant to do that with mineral fiber just because it is porous and open. And also any water that gets in, it's there's no, what I was saying before about drain, vertical wall cavities, you can flash stuff out and it gets out of the cavity. You don't have any option to do that in a roof. Just think about the slopes and where everything goes. It's stuck in there until it ends out, you know, manages to wiggle its way out at the bottom of the roof. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, my comment to that was you can't say the roof is just like a wall because it isn't. Gravity is nowhere near in your favor on a sloped roof, especially a three and 12, right. as it is on a vertically you know, oriented wall system. So another thing that's interesting about this assembly is that if you're putting the ridge insulation right on top of the structural deck, and then you're putting another layer with furring strips on top of that, you are ventilating the nail base on top of this whole assembly, but you're not venting the structural sheathing back down next to the rafters. So, so interesting, what could become important is, well, what's your cavity insulation there? Because now you might need to have some drying to the interior, given that you don't have any, you know, drying uh, to the exterior. And by the way, I didn't mention this is climate zone 7A, so we're pretty cold climate. <laughs> yeah, one, one additional piece, I'm not sure if this is part of the layup that he talked about, but on that first layer of structural sheathing, I would definitely want to have air barrier, keep, you know, mm. interior air from getting into your insulation sandwich. And number two, you probably need it anyway, just because you need to put a temp roof on before you, you know, it's uh, not like this foam's going to be going on the next day, right? Yeah. Interesting point. Um, okay. So uh, the next question I'm going to go to is um, from Miles. And he says, hey, y'all, uh, Thanks for the excellent informative podcast. Howdy, Miles. <laughs> uh, we just bought a 19-level farmhouse smack dab in the middle of Arkansas. Okay. So this is hot, humid climate. Uh, it features a pyramidal roof design with a dormer on front and another one at the rear of the house. Not quite sure how it's vented now at the peak, but it has vented soffits. What is the best strategy in my hot, humid climate to insulate and... Uh, uh, insulate and moisture manage this roof design. Uh, and, and I think he's looking for general guidance here on the type of insulation to use in the cavity. I think he's looking for guidance on whether it should be an unvented or a vented assembly. Um, he says also the very high pitched roof gave the previous owner the idea to convert the middle portion into the, into a sheetrocked condition living space. So that's important because we're not talking about a, you know, a vented attic or he's now converted this to a living space in the attic space. Um, it has wood slat ceilings at 12 feet high for the first floor and a steel roof, separate HVAC units up and downstairs and faced fiberglass bats currently in the ceiling joist gaps. Okay, so clearly we're moving from what was probably a vented attic space with the insulation down at the ceiling line but we have this condition space kind of cobbled into the attic. So it's probably like a cape, right? Where you have the triangular vented open attic 
Then you have a cavity or cathedralized ceiling for four or five feet. And then you have the remaining top third as a vented attic again. I think you're but right. Yep. Before we get to that, let's clarify one thing. Arkansas, hot. He called it a hot, humid climate. He did. So I don't think it's quite hot, humid. So that's it's climate zone. 3A. 3A. So that's mixed humid, not hot humid. Yeah, hot humid I would start to characterize once you get down to the red stuff, yeah. climate zone two. Remember that squiggly white line code oh, yeah. up in the code? Do you remember that you and I went county by county looking for airport data mm -hmm. to find out the number of hours, you know, and where the dew point was above 68 or something? And that was just this crazy ass exercise that we carried all the way from the from the Atlantic coast over to Texas. Do you remember that? Really? It was that specific? I would have guessed that it was something like Joe telling us the places where he's done really bad humidity <laughs> investigations and say, like, these are my dots. You guys figure out a line. Go. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, th that was one of the, the projects you and I worked on together that was just uh, it was only awesome because I got to work with you. <laughs> Everything else about it was really, really Horrible. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe we should answer this question about sort of best practice for what we now know is insulating at the rafter, not the ceiling, for both mixed humid and hot humid coda. Yeah, so... The first question is, can you make this into a vented roof assembly with insulation at the roof line? And my quick takeaway is with a hip style pyramid shaped roof, it's going to be really flipping hard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know that you can physically place vents on, uh, you know, hip ridges, the, the hips, but I've heard all sorts of folks push back. Um, so going from there, probably unvented is the most realistic option open cell foam, closed cell foam. My slight preference is closed cell just to avoid humidity buildup product problems we've seen with open cell. But a lot of local installers are open cell guys and that's what they do. So as long as you add a dehumidifier, I would live with that. Third option is in the code now, there are options for using fibrous insulation, such as dense pack fiberglass, cellulose, um, yeah. in the rafter cavity. If you put a diffusion vent up towards the top of the roof, basically letting any moisture that collects filter its way out of the very top portions of the cavities. Um, uh, yeah. Just sorry to interrupt, but yeah. If it's a pyramid-style roof that's coming up to just the triangle, then the same thing with venting and the vapor diffusion port. We don't have a whole lot of linear footage to install a vapor diffusion port up there. That's really interesting because we don't know how long, if any, of a ridge we have if it's a true pyramidal roof. Coda, what, what's the what is the deal? How if you have like a a hip that comes to a, a, a central, very short or non-existent ridge, how much ridge do you need in this type of configuration of a roof, roof that you can, you know, use the vapor diffusion port across the top of the roof? Yeah, you can start out to spread out the amount of vapor diffusion port you have by basically drilling holes through the sheathing at the hips and basically coming down a little bit more, catching a few more of those rafter cavities before they're all closed off. Do I have a hard and fast answer? No, not really. Um, mm -hmm. Do you know, at, you know, at least one six hundred, probably more than that, though, is, you know, there are numbers in the code, but my thought on diffusion vents are make them as big as you possibly can yeah. that still fit. Yeah. And, and we should mention that I'm, I believe it's 
you know, in the code R806.5 for unvented roof assemblies. And if you look at the number of sort of notes that you have to follow for climate zones one, two, and three, there's an awful lot to consider there in terms of roof pitch and, um, you know, uh, circulating air in the attic space below that so that you don't get humidity stacked up. There's a lot of requirements for this. Absolutely. And also, it's complicated enough that Joe was hired to write a guidebook for and to make doing these types of roofs more understandable in human-readable form as opposed to code language. Uh, it sounds like this would be a perfect candidate for a vented cupola. Ooh. A vented cupola. Now, just want to take note, that's the architect who is, mm -hmm. we're sitting here with the details and you go ahead and change the design. That's awesome, right? Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll tell uh, Miles that we hope that uh, cupolas fit into the, to the style of this particular roof. Well, you can roof. create a style. You can create a nice ultra-modern cupola. You can create a very historic. Yeah, you could. Room. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, so uh, I just want to be clear, though. We're saying that in both hot, humid, and mixed humid, that we can use either open cell, closed foam, uh, open cell foam, or closed cell foam. Do we have a? He's asking for sort of best practice. Do we have a preference? I think you said slight preference for closed cell. Correct. Closed cell is my preference. We've had a bunch of reports, not just BSE, but Green Building Advisor has summarized this too. Open cell foam attics have been reporting a bunch of humidity problems where think of the sheathing as a moisture magnet with open cell foam. You can basically ping pong moisture in and out of the roof sheathing. It basically accumulates over time and they're reporting stuff like 70, 80% humidity up in that attic. Throw a dehumidifier or some conditioned air, you can make it work, but that's the problem I prefer to avoid to begin with. Interesting. Now, if we move slightly <coughs> west of Arkansas and we're in Texas, I know there's a lot of open cell foam being used in those sort of cathedralized attics because of the high hat roof design that's so common. And again, I think they're using open cell foam because it's less expensive per R value than closed cell. Yeah, when you get south of climate zone four, you they all the insulators try and talk you out of closed cell foam very quickly. They're all open cell now, people. Now, what about, I mean, we do have medium density density uh, uh, foams, don't we? Is that like maybe a, a thing to consider? Yeah. One pound per cubic foot is what I would classify as that kind of middle density layer rather than open cell, half pound versus closed cell, typically two pound. Mm. The thing is, I've heard it exists. I don't think I've ever seen it out in the wild. Have you guys? <laughs> um, I have not. I, I've I've seen it in literature, but I too have never seen an actual medium density uh, spray and, foam. And as much as we like to talk about it, I don't think builders or the insulation industry, the the the, the worker bees, mm -hmm. mind you, like have a sense of one pound, two pound foam, etc. Interesting. I will say that you know. With any type of spray foam, it's the only product that we're manufacturing on the job site. So part of best practice would be be really sure that you pick a, uh, an insulation contractor who has some sort of third party certification or something to 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 identify sort of. Pardon me for saying this, Jake. He's not on this recording to separate the wheat from the chaff. Hey, <laughs> boy, do I have news for you. Uh-oh. Because on a recent job, I climbed up in a truck with the insulator, and he explained the whole machinery to me. 
Do nice. you know that his machinery, if the nozzle experiences any drift in the mix, machine shuts down. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 really top-notch rigs are incredibly sophisticated. It is like they're manufacturing in an industrial setting. Yeah. But those rigs, they're like $150,000 truck rigs that we're talking about. So that really does separate out the, you know, it was a great project in Brattleboro where there was a, a $150,000 chemistry lab in a truck here. And over here, there was a guy in a van with two barrels of part A and part B. And we thought, well, we know which guys are going to be coming Old back. wooden barrel with a little churning stick, right? It's like, don't worry, Jimmy. You'll be ready to spray in a couple of minutes. Okay. So I think that might be all that we have time for today. But, Coda, I want to ask you one final question, given that we're here at Building Science. What do you got, Peter? Summer camp. Um, we saw a presentation this morning on the new Building Science Advisor. And I just thought that was an amazing thing that Oak Ridge National Lab is working on. I just wanted to get your real quick cut on, I think it's absolutely critical for our industry, but I wanted to get your cut. Yeah, um, I've seen previous iterations of it. Um, it's a use, I've heard it pitched very well as a building science learning tool rather than a practitioner tool. As I tweak the dials, what kind of things do I find? Mm -hmm. um, I kind of have doubts how often it might be used by practitioners, but hey, maybe that's possible. Um, I had a few issues with minor bugs where it's telling me walls that I know work great are high risk, but oh, I'm hoping that those are fixed by now. I've not played with a new version. Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about it until here. And the, the plea from the guys who have been working on this is use it, make it a better tool. I'm pretty excited because um, in, in, uh, uh, builder trainings that I'm doing, and particularly for brand new people, man, what a great tool this would be to have them, you know, come to the first educational session, give them the website, have them go home and use it. And then we can talk about the next time they come about, what, what, how, do, how did the building and science advisor work for you? So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it, as you said, as an educational tool. Okay, Steve, um, I'm, I'm waiting to see if you have a little gem to wrap us no, up on. I don't. No, no, I'm serious. This is summer camp week. We got to be serious. Oh, I was really hoping for one of those yeah, uh, closing out with uh, I, I, there's a little tear trickling down my cheek. I'm so sad. And as far as I can tell, Steve's not hungover. So that's just reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coda, can't thank you enough for coming to the Unbuilt It podcast. Steve, what do people do to help support our Unbuilt It podcast? What do you mean? Send money. I'm waiting. For <laughs> send money. It's B A C Z E K when you're writing out the check. Is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about smashing the subscribe oh, button. Oh, yes. When you're on YouTube, you want to smash that subscribe button. But more importantly, you want to send in these questions because we've experienced a, a real positive move when people are sending in these questions because, you know, it's that, that whole adage of, you know, 100 people sitting in the seminar, somebody asked the question, but there's 20 other people that were thinking the same question. Exactly. And so these questions that we reviewed today and will, you know, the future ones, these are questions that literally there's hundreds of people out there that have the same question. And those who have been following Unbuilt Podcast for a time, we're getting more and more questions and that's leading to more and more great Unbuilt Podcasts uh, for us to address those questions. And so... Thanks a lot for listeners for sending those in. Coda, it is always a pleasure to be working with you. Fantastic yeah. hanging with you guys. No, thank you, Coda. We know you're real busy and uh, 
It is. It's it's truly a privilege for those of you that don't know Coda. Go to buildingsciencecorporation.com. It's easily one of the best resources out there for this level of knowledge. If you ever see Coda's name on a speaker list, <coughs> do what you can to get inside those doors because it's uh, totally worth it. And just to be fair, we the three of us fought for who could... Who, who was going to be dropped out of this? So poor Jake, he, he got the shortest straw. Okay, we'll see you next time. <laughs>